Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. And just as a reminder, this is our second mini-sode, which is our way of debriefing the last four episodes that we did. So it's a monthly episode and our uh, quick updates of things that are going on with the podcast and with this project. So first, a quick update and again, uh, thank you. Uh, So we have surpassed over 3,000 unique downloads for the podcast which after a month is just like incredible uh, for a podcast like this. So thank you so much for your continued support. Thank you to all the folks who have been willing to be interviewed. Uh, thank you for you all who have suggested people for us to interview, for the people who have shared it with your students or with your colleagues or with your friends. Uh, we continue to just be so overwhelmed uh, by the amount of support, which includes support on Twitter, Uh, Again, within that first month, we've surpassed 1,200 follows, which is just so heartwarming for Jess and I uh, that you all are interested in this project and that you all are willing to continue to support not only us, but also the folks who are really doing this radical work, uh, even as we still figure out exactly what that radical work means and what it is, um, as we discussed in some of our episodes. It's still a living definition that we're coming to together. Uh, We want to just give a very special shout out to the folks that we've been able to interview over the last month, some of whom whose episodes have come out already and some of whom we are very excited to release their episodes very soon. So this includes uh, Seda Gerses, Sarah Myers-West, Ruha Benjamin, Lily Arani, Karen Howe, Abeba Berhani, Yoon Sojo, Timnit Gebru, some of the upcoming interviews with Miriam Sweeney and Emily Bender, among others. So this is a very exciting time for Jess and I, uh, because these, again, are folks that like we really respect. And the fact that they're willing to sit down with us is just such an honor, and it's such a great learning experience for us in our own research, and then also to be able to share their stories beyond their research with each of you. Yeah, this is such a fun journey. I am having such a blast on this podcast and with these interviews. And uh, Dylan and I, we discovered that an interview with someone isn't the best way for all of you to get to know us very well. So um, that's one of the intentions with these minisodes as well. And then also we are going to be doing a fun Q&A episode in the future. And this uh, can be questions about uh, different things that we're doing with our research and also just who we are and how we're running this podcast and this project. So if you have any questions for us uh, related to anything, honestly, feel free to send us a tweet or an email, um, ask your burning questions, and we will do our best to answer them. We are open books. We are two open books. Jess, I wonder if it would be helpful for us to say just maybe in a sentence or two, again, who we are and like where we're studying and what we're studying. Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, Especially because people are listening to our voices every week and they might not even know who we are. Yeah, so I'll go first. Uh, I'm Jess. My full name is Jesse, which is probably what you'll see online a lot. I am researching at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and my research interests lie at the intersection of algorithmic fairness and bias 
and uh, social science and philosophical fairness and bias, trying to build a bridge between the two. And uh, my name is Dylan Doyle Burke. Um, formerly, I'm Reverend Dylan Doyle Burke, uh, and I'm a Unitarian Universalist minister. I'm still serving a congregation. Uh, and through that journey, uh, I am uh, doing my, I found myself in this PhD program in religious studies, uh, studying artificial intelligence ethics. And specifically, I'm looking at robot-human interaction and morality and questions of what it means to be human. And I'm also dipping my toes into uh, public policy and a little bit about sociology and digital spaces uh, right now. It, it, we're, I'm still early in my PhD, um, so it's it, it changes. <laughs> so if you ask, maybe that would be a good segment on this episode, actually, on, <laughs> on these mini-sodes, is just where is, where is our research now? Uh, as it changes every few weeks, but but that's a little bit of or as it changes every interview. That's right. <laughs> it's one of the amazing things about these uh, these interviews, right? Is that they alter how we think about these topics uh, pretty radically, I guess, pun intended, every time uh, because the folks that we're talking about uh, provide new lenses for us to think about the same issues. Which uh, it's just it's an incredible experience. Definitely, yeah. And some some quick other uh, final updates before we dive into um, the rest of this minisode. We are working on new branding, so uh, stay tuned for that. It's coming very soon. And also, if you would like to be a guest on the podcast, or you know someone who might like to be a guest on the podcast, please introduce yourself or introduce us to whoever you have in mind. Uh, and we also are hoping to do a student panel in the near future. Um, we're experimenting with the idea of panels. So if you and some of your colleagues uh, in a lab maybe would like to discuss some of the awesome work that you're doing in the AI ethics space, please let us know and we would love to have you on. A quick note on uh, the branding. We really want this new branding to be representative of many different experiences of radicality um, and really to, to cast a, uh, or to draw a wide circle, to cast a wide circle around what this uh, terminology of radical means. So we've been talking with folks um, about ways that we could be more representative and we'll talk more about that process of creating a, a brand and, and kind of where we're heading with this Radical AI project in addition to the podcast more on our next mini-sode next month. So please stay tuned for that. And without further ado, let's dive in to our monthly debrief. Drum roll, please. <laughs> Just, do we have a drum roll? Okay, well, we'll, well just we play can. the music. All right, we'll play the music. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the last four episodes that we've released over the past month uh, in our debrief. And the way, I'm still trying to figure out the best way to do this debrief, but the way that uh, I wanted to begin for myself, just to organize my thoughts, is by pulling out some quotes uh, from each of them. So we'll go episode by episode with Jess and I talking a little bit about our takeaways after we've had a little time to uh, digest from the interview and from the episode, and after we've heard a little bit of feedback from you all of the audience about these episodes. So let's begin with uh, Shamika's episode. And one quote that I pulled out from Shamika's episode is that she said, for me, I believe that the divine exists in everything. The divine is omniscient, present everywhere all the time, and that includes the bits and bytes, the zeros and the ones, the digital space. For, so for me, she said, it makes sense that God would be online in an app and the screen. 
Uh, and obviously, I've been sitting with this a lot, uh, this concept of, you know, where the divine is, especially in this, as a minister in this weird world where my congregation can't meet. Uh, what does it mean for us to be bringing more of our communities into this online space? How does it change what meaning is and what purpose is and even what community is um, when we're subverting some of the norms that we've created over, you know, uh, hundreds of years <laughs> of how religious community operates? Um, and so this concept for me is really powerful that Shamika brought up about uh, that the divine can exist in the bits and bytes. And uh, I've just been reflecting a lot about, well, what does that actually mean when you lose that materiality um, of either worship together or of just like being together. And so Jess and I are now recording this podcast, you know, separately, always on Zoom. So like, what does that mean for our dynamic as we still continue to grow as podcasters and our relationships with our guests as well? Because we are trying to build a community. Um, so I've just been thinking about that a lot, about how purpose and meaning shifts when you move from the material world to the digital world, or even if it does, like, is it the same substance, <laughs> if you will, that meaning and community that we're creating or whether that necessarily shifts because we're not in that same material place? Yeah. Wow. I, I've definitely been also uh, called to reassess my relationship with technology from Shamika's episode. And I've been sitting with this a lot lately, especially in the times of this pandemic and quarantine. I am such a technological skepticist in my life. And it's very hard for me to take a step back and to admit that technology is good, uh, which I probably need to do more often in this field that I'm in. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I just really liked that Shamika made me think twice about the way that I um, think about the technology that I use. And maybe divine isn't the right word for me, but I think I, I do look at my technology and I see more than a piece of metal. I see that it is the ability to connect me with other people. It's the ability for me to um, honestly just conduct my day-to-day -day life in times like this where I have to work from home every single day. So I am taking away from this kind of just a greater like gratitude and appreciation for the tools that I have and for the technology that's at my fingertips. Uh, because I, yeah, I think it's always good to just feel gratitude for honestly, the amazing ability that that we have to connect to the entire world in, you know, the push of a button. And I can hold something in my hand that 100 years ago took up over an entire room. You know, it's, it's definitely, it's, it is magic and, and maybe divine is a good word to use. I don't know. I'm still figuring that out, but I, I definitely, I'm, I'm taking a step away from my skepticism and I'm feeling much more hopeful and, and grateful for the, the little piece of metal that I carry in my hands. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, Jess, about that, um, skepticism <laughs> versus hope. <laughs> uh, and I think that like all of our interviews in the past month that we've released have played with that tension of how do we you know, critique while also holding on to hope? Uh, how do we like not fall into that like abject despair? Um, so that's that's my segue to move into the Sarah Myers West episode. Uh, but I also do want to, again, uh, say thank you to Shamika for coming on the show. And also, you know, thank you to, um, to the program that you're in at CU Boulder for creating space for someone like Shamika to be able to do something in terms of this, uh, you know, theology, womanism, technology space to be able to continue to create that, um, because I think it shows, at least in uh, in part, um, some shifts that we're seeing occurring out in institutions 
that are making room for more nuanced and more interdisciplinary conversations to happen across disciplines, which I think is so needed in uh, technology spaces. So I don't know, I'm, I'm very grateful for Shamika for continuing to pave the way in those conversations, among others um, in her field, and also for your institution uh, for creating that space. Uh, <laughs> yeah, shout out to CU Boulder Information <laughs> Science Department. That's right, and uh, of course, uh, a, a shout out in that to, uh, to your advisor, uh, Dr. Casey Fiesler, who is, uh, who's also been serving as a mentor for me as well. So um, just, you know, slight, slight shout out to her. Um, <laughs> Lots of thanks to go around. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so, um, but that, again, that was my segue uh, to the Sarah Myers West episode. Uh, of course, Dr. West, uh, who is currently serving as a postdoc for the AI Now Institute at uh, NYU. And the quote that I pulled out from her uh, when we asked her about, you know, a piece of advice that she would give. Um, and I believe this was a piece of advice that she that I invited her to give to uh, herself or to other younger uh, women um, who are embarking on computer science. And the first piece of advice that she gave was to hold tight to a set of core values and principles to develop that core sense of self and what you believe is. Um, and to not ever be held back, particularly if you have an interest working in science and technology. And to especially to not ever be held back by the policing around expertise, because we know historically, particularly for women and particularly for people of color, that expertise is defined against identity. Uh, and this, I think, is such a critical point of um, how we navigate these spaces and these hidden political games that we can find ourselves in, possibly particularly for women and for people of color, uh, where there's this like this false idea of meritocracy and that hard work is the thing that gets us higher in our careers and gets us tenure and out in industry and all that, um, where really there are so many factors and sometimes there are these really hidden barriers. And so I'm very grateful for Sarah Myers West and her team who continue to critique um, these technology spaces in terms of, again, their paper discriminating systems and uh, other work that they're doing in terms of gender and race, uh, while also trying to create you know, spaces of hope. Um, and this quote from her, I think, really speaks to that sense of hope that she's trying to create in her own research. I'm going to be honest with you, Dylan. Um... I had a lot of thoughts coming away in terms of representation after talking about uh, or talking with Sarah Myers West. And when she was talking about the numbers, uh, that really stuck with me quite a bit. She was saying 18% of the leading female authors at AI conferences are female, only 18%, and 80% of AI professors are male. Um, I have been the only female in a computer science class many times before. Uh, in classes of like over 30 people, I've been like the only female there. And I've been on uh, computer science development teams at companies where I am the only female among 20 to 30 middle-aged men, uh, mostly white. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a barrier. <laughs> it is definitely a barrier. It's difficult to work with people who are so drastically different from you. And it's difficult to do your work and stay true to who you are. Um, unless you, uh, you know, it's it's hard to to just basically try to to fit in 
um, with people who aren't like you while being you. <laughs> and I, I really appreciate what Sarah said because I think it's important to remember who you are. Um, and unfortunately, in, in the computer science and in the tech industry, sometimes for um, women, at least in my experience, sometimes staying true to who you are means leaving. And it's a shame and it's a hard topic to talk about, one which I'm sure we'll get into much more in later episodes, minisodes and interviews. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not always easy, uh, but it's it's really it's important to stay hopeful and to stay authentic. And that authenticity is something that uh, we really um, explored in uh, Dr. Ruha Benjamin's episode as well. Um, and as I mentioned, I think in our brief breakdown at the at the end of that episode, uh, this concept of love is huge for me, especially coming from like a humanities and some people might call, you know, soft science uh, background where there's this question of um, of what we do with emotions, uh, especially when we start bringing it to, you know, quote unquote, more objective spaces or more scientific spaces. Like, is there a place for emotion? Is there a place for authenticity? even. Um, and there's definitely been times where me coming from a humanities background and coming from a ministry background, really, where what we talk about is, you know, spirituality, emotion, and authenticity, um, where that I've had to tamp that down uh, in my essays or in my research um, for fear of not being seen as legitimate. So at the end of the interview, we started talking about love with this interview with Ruha. And uh, she said, and I think that that, that love, is an essential ingredient to anything that purports to or claims to be radical. In part, because love runs against our training as enlightenment intellectuals, and that that's a whole different sphere of life, right? Because love has nothing to do with like the intellectual work of the mind, she said, um, and that grows out of a very specific trajectory and genealogy that does not serve the vast majority of human beings. And she closed that with the fact that we amputate how we feel about things from what we think about things. So for her, love is an essential ingredient to everything that she does, especially teaching. So kind of to, to summarize, um, you know, Ruha was saying basically there's this whole tradition where we separate emotions and love from the work that we do in the academy and in industry and in science and technology. And uh, what I took from what she said is like, what, what might it be like for us to be able to create space to love in technology, or at least even talk about love? Or what is it like to create space in technology um, to even talk about authenticity? Um, or at least how do we make our technological spaces, especially in industry, less toxic to that? Actually, I would add in the academy too. Because there are so many times where I've had to play more political games to just like say the right thing or do the right thing and not be authentic, uh, you know, to, to protect my career or to get ahead. And um, that's I think that's really unfortunate. So I'm still grappling with what she said with that. But I think it's so true um, that we've been conditioned to separate love and emotion from some of the work that we do. Not all the time, but enough of the time where I think it gets in the way of us really being able to show up and address the deeper systematic problems that um, we've been introduced to. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's, it's almost interesting to think about how it's even possible to remove something like love and passion from your research or from what you're doing at your job. Because 
in some sense, those things should be like heavily, deeply rooted and embedded in the work that you do. I know for me, all of my research and, you know, 10 to 12 to 14 hour days that I have doing PhD work, as you know very well, Dylan, too, like that comes from a lot of love. <laughs> you don't just do that kind of work and hate what you do, you know? There's there's some sort of driving power and force from deep within that, that uh, brings us to do the work that we do. And so when you're talking about especially really important topics like social justice issues, that is clearly coming from a deeper place. And there's, it would be, it would be not useful to ignore the fact that love is clearly present in those spaces. And uh, I, I think that was also something that we saw a lot um, in our interview with Lily Irani too, maybe not as much love, but that passion and that emotion. And, and she mentioned actually anger a lot in her episode. And she brought to light the fact that there are some emotions that we usually think of as really negative that are actually really powerful and useful when it comes to this work. And uh, I think that's just, it's, it's just showing how important it is to really bring your true and authentic self, um, your anger, angry self, your loving self, your passionate, your authentic self um, to, to the workplace when you, when you do this work and when you do community building or movement building like Lily Arani is doing or when you are um, trying to uproot deep-seated social, social ideals uh, like Ruha Benjamin is doing. I think it's... Uh, it's it's unavoidable and it's important. Yeah, I mean, that's that's why, I mean, uh, one of the reasons why I asked Lily about anger is because that's why I got into this work in the first place, honestly. Um, and by this work, I mean just like ministry in general uh, and now this work in AI ethics. Um, and just, I was just before we were, inter we were uh, recording this, I was just showing you a picture from my year abroad back in, uh, God, like eight years ago, <laughs> back in college. And um I was showing it to you because it was just a silly picture of me where I had a ridiculous haircut. Uh, but the um, that year, I mean, I just was able to travel around the, the world and see the downstream impacts of capitalism, essentially, especially on indigenous populations. And I was so pissed that I decided the best thing to do was to go into ministry to be able to change the world for the better. And it's the same thing now. Like when I, when we were talking to Lily, uh, it is hard not to get so angry at how some of these corporations are treating their labor or what they're essentially treating as like free labor um, that are just like Amazon, right? Playing into uh, some of these historically uh, marginalizing systems of oppression in order to create data that then gets used in order to reinforce these systems of oppression for the same people that have been historically marginalized and the cycle continues. Uh, and it's hard not to get angry. Um, and for me, it's hard not to feel like sometimes disconnected. And so the quote that I pulled from Lily was at the end when um, we were talking about research and advice that she might have um, and how she thinks about her own research. And she asked, I think, this really profound question where she said, what does it look like if I treat research like a social movement instead? And the instead was referring to not as a competitive thing where we as researchers are jockeying for position over jobs and researchers, but what if we're treating our research that we're um, offering up into the world 
like a social movement where we're all talking to one another and building this thing together that is hopefully serving for the liberation of all. Uh, and for me, that was just, that was a very powerful question. Um, I think it's, it's very hard in the systems, at least the academic systems that we're in, to make that shift because I do believe in a very like Foucault sense, we've been disciplined to be competitive with each other as opposed to collaborative. Uh, and I think her challenge is, is right on. It's just, how do we make this a collaborative space, both in industry and the academy? Um, it's, so I, that's, I sometimes lose hope with that, but uh, I, I, take, I take her call to action very seriously because I think it's what we need to do. Yeah, I completely agree. And hopefully that's something that we're at least trying to start doing while creating this podcast and interviewing people in this space and, and uplifting, you know, uh, advisors and PhD and doctoral um, candidates and uh, people who have been in the space for a while and also uplifting students and people who are just getting into the space. I don't think that academia needs to exist vertically. I think it's a very horizontal field uh, if we all treat it like one. And there's no need to be competitive, especially when it comes to AI and ethics. It doesn't matter who gets the publication out first. It matters that the publication is good and correct and accurate and helpful rather than harmful. And that's honestly something that doesn't happen as often in computer science and in some of the engineering spaces in academia, there is that sense of competition a lot of the time. And so how do we really dig into some of these uh, research topics and some of the work that people are doing and take out of it um, this sense of camaraderie and this sense that we are all in this together. And if we don't do this together, someone might get left behind. Jess, do you know what the hardest thing about creating a mini soda is? Keeping it short? <laughs> yeah, keep, keeping it mini, exactly. Uh, so, we're, so we're getting to the, the end of our, our, our breakdown. Um, but uh, I was wondering, um, this is something we haven't talked about before. It is not in our script. Uh, but I was wondering if there was like one takeaway from these last four episodes, uh, if you had like one sentence or one thought um, that you would like to like leave our audience with, like what, what would it be? Mm. Okay. Well, based off of our conversation today, I would probably say stay passionate, stay authentic and stay hopeful. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. I like, but, I like you that. <laughs> well, that's better. That's better. Well, I, I asked you first cause I, uh, needed more I time to think. One. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, I, I like your, I guess it would be a question. So I like your authenticity. I think that's like a major component of, of what we heard from our folks, um, from the folks we interviewed. But I think the, like the question that I'm starting to try to ask myself and that I would invite listeners to ask yourself is, um, God, was it, was it outcast? Uh, God, who, who was that? Who was that? The, the, where is the love? Do you remember that song, Jess? No. <laughs> Look, I'm going to, I'm going to, well, we're okay. Where it's the benefits of a Zoom call. Love. You can just Google anything at any time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was the Black Eyed Peas, right? You remember the Black Eyed Peas? Sure. You know, people killing, people die. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a whole thing. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I think that's, that's the question that we should be asking ourselves more in whatever work we're doing, uh, wherever we find ourselves situated, is like, where is the love in what you're doing? And like, can you, can you lean into that more? That question of love, which for me, like authenticity is part of that. 
But uh, where is the love? Just it's all about the black eyed peas. <laughs> Biggest takeaway from the last month. Listen to the black eyed peas. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's got a great music video, too, for, for where is the love. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, so as always, uh, we welcome feedback about our show, um, about these minisodes, about our interview, about how we're even treating the term uh, radical itself. Um, and uh, as always, you can feel free to show your support by rating, subscribing, sharing the episodes. Uh, the way that we get into people's ears is through word of mouth. Like that, that is the way that this show gets shared. So if you're into what we're doing, please do not hesitate to share it with folks who you think might be interested. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And as always, stay, stay radical. radical. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Listen, listen to the Black Eyed Peas. Maybe we'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> It'll be the outro music. <laughs> yeah. Do we? <laughs> we might get copyright. We probably get in trouble for copyright. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if we have shows.